Russell. Well, good morning. Praise the Lord. It's not 100 degrees outside. That's good news. Uh, well, at this time, we turn to God's Word. If you haven't been with us for this summer, we're in a series called Stories and Songs, where we're studying psalms that come directly out of stories in the Scriptures. And this morning's story comes from First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 23. Our sister Isabel Warmka is going to come here in just a moment and read for us. This uh, superscript, the, the opening to Psalm 54, goes like this. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David among us? So as we come to 1 Samuel 23, here's the context. David has just delivered uh, Calithia, which is a, a, a town nearby, from the Philistines. The Saul, Saul hears that he is there, so he sent an army and goes after David. David hears that Saul's coming. He seeks God. God tells him uh, that the people are going to betray him, so he, he flees. And he flees to Ziph. Now, the people who live there are Ziphites, um, and the Ziphites are family. They are of Judah. They are, yeah, they're, they're David's tribe. So this is supposed to be a safe place for him as well. But we're going to see if that's how it turns out. 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, chapter, or verse 14 through 29. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph, ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, 
Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Let's pray. Father, we pray that now you who are our rock of escape, that we would flee to you looking for help in our time of need. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is never confused, who is never unavailable, that is always faithful and trustworthy. And we come now and ask that you would help us to understand your word and how it applies to us in this day. God, help us when hope feels lost to know that you are our help. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, that story in 1 Samuel 23 is one of my favorites. I love seeing David pinned in such a situation that there's no way that he could get out unless God showed up, and God did in miraculous fashion by sending some Philistines to come and to deliver him. Well, Psalm 54, which is where we are this morning, is David's response to that situation. We don't know if he wrote it in the midst of hiding um, or if it was right afterwards and it was reflection or where it is in the midst of there, but, but we learn at the very beginning of Psalm 54 that, that this psalm comes from this situation. Let's hear it together, Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 54. If we're going to summarize what Psalm 54 means and what it means for us, we could, we could do it a lot of different ways. We're going, to, we're going to go with this. When hope is lost, God will help. When hope is lost, God will help. God is our help in times of hopelessness. This psalm, as we, as we work through it, we're going we're gonna to follow in kind of three movements. Verses 1 through 3, pray for help. Pray for help when you're feeling hopeless. Pray for help, verses 1 through 3. Then verses 4 and 5, proclaim your hope. Proclaim your hope. In, in the face of whatever trouble is coming at you, 
We're going to say God is our hope. He is our help. Proclaim your hope. And then verses 6 through 7, praise your helper. Praise your helper. Worship him in the midst of circumstances that would tell you not to. Because he is worthy no matter what is going on around us. So when hope is lost, know that God will help. So pray for help, proclaim your hope, and praise your helper. Verses 1 through 3, pray for help. Look again, O God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For, this is the reason, the reason he needs to be saved and to be vindicated. This is the reason he needs God to hear his prayer. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Now we know the story. Right? Betrayal has broken down the dam of safety. And danger is rushing right at David like a flood. He's got nowhere to turn except up. Because he is, he is in trouble. Notice there he uses three different phrases to describe these people who are against him. First, strangers have risen against me. The word strangers, it means unlawful people, typically used of enemies of God, of non-Jews. These are foreigners who hate God is the idea here. And to, to rise up against, it means to stand up to do harm. It's used to, the word to attack somebody. You get up to attack them. He says, these, these unlawful people have, have come to attack me. And what's, what's so important for us to see is how this is not just a physical danger. This would have been a very emotional danger as well for, for him. Because these people are the Ziphites and Saul. They should have been anything but strangers to him. The Ziphites were Israelites of the tribe of Judah. David's of the tribe of Judah. These are his brothers and his sisters, his nieces, his nephews, his cousins. Saul was supposed to be his mentor, his friend. And, and David loved and, 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 and served and submitted to him. Yet they're here, they're, they're betraying David. And they're betraying God. This is why he rightly calls them strangers. They should be my friends. They should be my family. But they're strangers attacking me. Secondly, he says, ruthless men seek my life. The word means it's a violent tyrant. It's, it's, it's a, 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 it's, there's fierce here. It's terrifying these enemies are. They're ruthless men. He says like they're, they're like lions and wolves stalking me. They're like sharks circling around me, smelling blood. They're ruthless. Thirdly, he says they do not set God before themselves. They don't put or place or arrange God in their sight. God is absent from their worldview. They're practically atheists. They're, they're, they're operating as if there's no God. They're operating as if they're God. That's the scariest kind of people, people who don't fear God. So there's nobody above them. He says, they're coming after me like animals with no conscience. I love how the message 
renders this. It says, all outlaws are out to get me. Hitmen are trying to kill me. Nothing will stop them. God means nothing to them. That's a great paraphrase. It's a Red Sea situation for David. As Pharaoh's army had hemmed the Israelites on the bank of the Red Sea, so Saul's army has now hemmed David behind this mountain, and all hope is lost. You ever been there? Have you ever, have you ever faced trouble like this? Some of you are there this morning. There's betrayal swirling around. There's danger swirling around in your life and in, in your mind. It, it, it presses you to a, a place of, of hopelessness. Are you, in, are you in danger this morning? Maybe some of you, your lives may literally be in danger. Some of you, your safety may be in danger. Is there someone or something lurking to harm you? Others of you may have a diagnosis that feels like an enemy. It's a grave situation and you don't know what to do. Some of you are maybe in a, a financial crisis that threatens everything that you have. You're like, I don't know how, I don't know how we're going to make it through this month. Some of you are in the midst of marital strife that is so severe that you can't imagine how your marriage will survive. It feels so hopeless everywhere you look. Maybe there's a friend or a family member who has turned on you and you feel forsaken and hopeless like David must have felt. Or maybe it's, it's much more in the spiritual realm, not that those things aren't spiritual, but, but maybe there's temptations. Maybe you're in a season of temptation right now that it feels so fierce you're not sure how to endure it without caving. Or maybe you have caved and you're so ensnared and you're not sure how you're going to get out. Or maybe it's even clearer satanic attack. I heard from our Thailand team uh, recently this week. Nick Na reached out as they're, they're in Thailand ministering, and he said they've just been facing all sorts of, I think, to be pretty clear demonic attack with very strange nightmares and sicknesses and all sorts of strange things happening. So be, be praying for them. It it's, can be scary. David's dilemma here is desperate. And this is where, again, don't let the black and white pages fool you. The Bible is not just a story, a, a book of, filled with a bunch of stories. It's a real man who faced real stuff like what you're facing, and God has preserved it so that you and I can read it and say, I need whatever he got. His enemies are near. But David knows that God is nearer. The Ziphites are near. God is near. Saul is real near, but God is nearer. So what does David do with his fear? He fixes his hope on God through prayer. Verse 2, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Notice here, rather than abandoning his faith and just saying, that's it. If, if God's going to treat me like this, I'm out. Rather than doing that, he allows the trial to have its intended effect. God permits trials and sufferings for the purpose of pushing us toward him. Now you've got to know that every trial is going to push you. 
Every suffering, every affliction, every bit of persecution, wherever and what angle it comes from, you've got to know it's going to push you. Satan wants it to push you away from God with all the questions of why would a good God who's supposed to be in charge use his power and his love to bring this kind of stuff going on in my life. Satan wants you to, to question God's character and his intent in your life so that you will move away from him and find refuge somewhere else. But God has given his word so that we will see his faithfulness in the lives of men and women throughout the scriptures and say, he is my hope. Trials will push you. Lean into the Lord and allow them like, like the wind in a sail to push you toward Jesus and not away from him. And one of the ways you do this is you pray. You pray for help and you pray in light of God's person. You, you, you pray in light of God's person, who he is. Look again, verse 1. Save me by your what? Your name. Save me by your, your name. The name is who you are. It's your, it's your character. So, little class participation. Tell me, tell me a characteristic of God. What's he like? Tell me about his name. He is what? Now, I'm old and there's fans. Say it louder. He's holy. He's set apart. There's none like him. He never, ever does evil. Good. What? He's merciful. He loves to not give us what we deserve. We deserve wrath. He loves to not give it. He loves to give us mercy. What else? He's faithful. If he says he's going to do it, he'll do it every single time. He never lies. What else? He's a provider. We have nothing. We came into this world, I mean, with an umbilical cord to teach us. Isn't that what it's called? Yeah, it's not a bungee cord. It's an umbilical cord. He came, <laughs> you know, anyway, he, he, we were wired from the beginning to know you can't sustain yourself. In the womb, as soon as you come out, you need air, we need food. We are wired to be needy, and he is a provider always. What else? Oh, my goodness. Yes, probably, unless it was heretical. Yes, I don't even know what you said. He is he is omnipresent. He is, all, he is always with us. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is wise. He knows what we don't know. We could be here all day talking about his goodness and who he is. David says, by your name, by who you are, move, act. David is pleading with God to save him, to rescue him, to deliver him, to protect him by your name. Draw from who you are and step in and save, O Lord. Now again, remember, a name is only as good as the one who bears it. The Ziphites were supposed to be family, but they forsook him. Saul's supposed to be king, but he couldn't be trusted because he was jealous, but God's name can be trusted. Verse 6, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. God is good. He does good. He can be trusted. He never lies. He never changes. He's always faithful. It's really interesting. Through this psalm, there are three names that are used for, for God. They each emphasize different things of his character. Verses 1 through 4, he's referred to as Elohim. He is God, the one who, who has power and authority and creates all things, who has supremacy and majesty. In verse 4, he is L-O-R-D, Adonai, um, that's the lowercase o-r-d. It means he's the master, the, the ruler, the sovereign. He has a wise plan that he's working out. Then in verse 6, he's Yahweh, L-O-R-D, uh, capitals. 
He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Save me by your name, he says. And then pray in hope of God's power. Verse 1 again, vindicate me by your might. To vindicate means to judge rightly, to pass a verdict that excuses the innocent and condemns the guilty. David says, make things right, God, and do it in such a way that I know and they know and everybody knows that they are the ones who are doing evil here. I, I did nothing wrong to make the Ziphites betray me. I did nothing wrong to make Saul hate me. God, and David knows he's not a perfect person, but this circumstance is not his fault. God, intervene in such a way that everybody knows that I'm innocent and they're doing evil. By your might, draw from your universe-creating power, your Red Sea-splitting strength, your omnipotent ability. Do whatever it takes to make things right. God, I need you to show up now. Help. The Bible is filled with bold prayers like that because God wants his people to be bold in crying out to him. Pray for help. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be bashful. Cry out, help me, God. He wants you to do that. And God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I need you to show up and do it now in some kind of weird, wild way like you tend to do. Do it. God loves to answer those kinds of prayers. There's a, a fun one from... Um, church history, and there's a, a Scottish uh, minister named Alexander Hayden, I believe, P-E-D-E-N. He was in the 1660s. He had been ejected from the national church because he refused to conform to the corrupted practices of the church enforced by Charles II. Well, Pedden became well known for his field preaching. He became kind of a bit of a, a celebrity. And he was always on the run. So he would, he would move from one town to another, and he'd always be preaching, preaching faithful gospel words. And he's always on the run from the authorities. He most often slept in caves or shelters to avoid arrest, so he's always hiding out. Well, on one occasion, he and some others were being pursued by some soldiers on horse. And he got ahead of them a little bit, and he paused for some needed breather and also time for a desperate prayer. And one of the guys who was with him wrote down what he prayed. Lord, your enemies are not idle, but do you not have other work for them to do than to chase after us? Send them after somebody else to whom you will give strength to flee because our strength is gone. Send them around the hill to do something else. <laughs> That's a great prayer. I, I almost wonder if he had 1 Samuel 23 in mind with that hill situation. And you know what happened? just by chance, a very strong thunder and lightning storm moved in between the approaching authorities and this pastor and his guys, and it was so severe that the authorities turned around and went somewhere else. Now, does God always do that? Nope. But does he sometimes? Sometimes he does. Ask him. Plead, God, I don't know how you're going to show up now. I need your help. Pray for help. Secondly, proclaim your hope. Proclaim your hope. Verses 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
He will return to the evil. He, I mean, he will return. He don't return to evil. He never does that. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Notice here, David shifts from talking to God to now talking about God. In verses 1 through 3, he cries to God for deliverance. And now in verses 4 through 5, he cries out to himself, to the congregation who's going to be singing this, to us who are going to be hearing it, to see God for who he is. David declares, God is my helper. He is my hope. David is making things really clear right here. He is not trusting himself. Now, we've seen David in some other scenarios get really crafty and kind of creative in a way that seemed to be, yeah, seemed to be very wise. And there's time for that. But notice here, once again, David doesn't be like, yo, I got, some, I got, I got something on my sleeve. I got plan B. He's got no plan B. All chips are on the Lord here. He's not trusting himself. He's not trusting his allies. His hope is in God's help. Friends, your hope is God's help. That's it. Verse 4, behold, God is my helper. David has pled with God to save him according to his name. Here he proclaims his name, helper. God's help is my hope, he says. The word for helper means one who comes to the aid of those in need. Are you needy? God specializes in helping the needy. It's, it's the word that God uses to comfort suffering Israel in Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. What an amazing, wonderful expression of divine humility. God says, I'm eager to stoop down into your insufficiency and to meet you in your misery. God, God is not some absentee landlord, some absentee father, some, somebody that you've got to reach out to and be on hold for a few hours and maybe there's not Verizon. They're not, he doesn't treat you like that. He is near, always available, especially in times of need and desperation. Do you feel needy? Do not despair. No matter what we face, Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, some of y'all got some fearful imaginations. You'll be like, I'll tell you what people can do to me. <laughs> you start thinking of all the ways that you could be in trouble. Listen, it is natural for our fearful imaginations to run wild in the midst of affliction. The, 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 the fear and, and the, the reality of being hurt and, and, and suffering can be crippling. But God says, lift your eyes off of the circumstances and put them on me who holds the circumstances. I'm your helper. You sitting around figuring out all the ways this is going to go bad will not serve your soul. It just throws you into anxious despair that spins about. Look at me. I hold the universe in the palm of my hands. Nothing will separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. Hold fast to me, he says. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When trouble is near, God is nearer. He moves toward us to help. One of our members this past week uh, dropped me a line. This is a, this is a 
yeah, a, a dear brother who, who battles with, with depression and loneliness, um, and shared with me a quote from a book that he's been reading recently called Spurgeon's Sorrows. It's, it's a book all about Charles Spurgeon, who's a faithful minister in the 1800s in London who struggled yeah, basically unceasingly with depression. He wrestled with depression his entire ministry. Spurgeon said this, We rightly wonder why God allows depression and other suffering. But let us also wonder why he chooses to suffer it with us and for us. Yes, there are many questions about why God would allow such sufferings in our life. The, the, the dark cloud of depression. But there's another question that the Christian must marvel at, and that is, and why would he stay with me through it all? And why would he be the sort of God who would be willing to enter into this world and endure such darkness himself in order to show me love? Why would he do that? It's because he loves you. It's because he loves his people. It's because he's faithful to his people. If you are in Christ, he loves you with an everlasting love, and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not Ziphites or Saul or anybody else or anything else. This is the hope of David and those of us who are in Christ. God is our helper, but not from afar. He draws near. Our psalm a couple weeks ago, 3418, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. This is what David means in 54.4. God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The word upholder, it means support or to keep someone upright. Have you ever been so overrun by despair that you didn't feel like you could stand up? Or have you ever been with somebody who's in that situation? Maybe it's a, at a funeral or a diagnosis or news has just come in or it's just become too much and they just, they're just about to faint. The, the picture here is that God is the upholder. He's the supporter. He wraps arms around and holds you up so that you do not drop. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. You might, but he don't. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. David's saying, when, when my heart sank, when I heard my brothers betrayed me, God upheld my heart. When my knees were shaking because I was so tired from running again and I'm hiding behind this hill and I don't know if I'm going to die, God held me up. And this word has been preserved by God's sovereign love and faithful spirit so that we can hear it today to say whatever makes your heart drop, God will hold it up. Whatever makes your knees shake and you grow weary from running, He has you. He is that kind of God. He sent a storm for a Scottish minister. He sent a pillar of fire for ancient Israel. And he sent the Philistines for David. God will help his people, sometimes in some weird ways, but he will do it. Now, as I give this word of encouragement, I, I must be clear that Saul could not have read this psalm the same way that David does. What I mean by that is that 
God is not everybody's helper in the same way. The Bible is not just a book that you can just open up like a fortune cookie and reach in and be like, oh, that's for me. God's got to tell you it's for you. And the way that you know it's for you is if you are his child through regeneration and rebirth by being born again by trusting in Christ. If you are God's child by covenant, David was God's child by covenant. God had made covenant with, with him, with Israelites. They had trusted him by faith. Those who are in Christ are those who have turned away from their sin and trusted in him. We get all the covenants and the new covenant because we get Christ. That hope is for us. But God promises to help those who love him and fear him and trust him by faith. But those who do not know him, he may help you sometimes. I remember there were times as a non-Christian that I would, I would pray for some help and he would help me. But the reason he would do it is to get you to see that he's your only hope. It's not him condoning your, your sinful life. And that's where I got it twisted as a non-Christian. I kept living in rebellion against God because I just assumed me and God were cool because he hadn't just smote me. God helps people to point them to him. And in the end, on the last day, you will not receive help from God if you are not his in the way that you need it most, which is on the day of judgment. When you stand before him, he will not just be like, well, I'll forgive you because I'm nice. God is not nice like that. God is just. He will not allow evil to go unchecked. So the only way that he can be merciful and the helper to sinners like us is ultimately through his son, Jesus, who he poured out justice on so that he could then give mercy. That's what the cross and the empty tomb are all about. The cross is where God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that justice would be served, and then Jesus rose from the dead, and now with that authority, he gives mercy to all who will have the posture of David and say, help me, I'm desperate, not just from circumstances around me, but from the sin within me, I need a Savior. We'll see that in a couple weeks whenever, um, very clearly when we do Psalm uh, 51. David is well aware that he needs God to be his Savior, not just from circumstance, but also from himself. This is what David even thinks about here in verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. David's prayer is tapping into a cry for God to do justice in this wicked world. Cause the evil that my enemies have purposed for me to fall upon them, Lord. Bring just judgment on them. Now, I had a really good conversation this week with a sister from our church wrestling with how, how can a Christian pray that kind of prayer? We're supposed to pray for mercy. We're supposed to pray for our enemies and, and, and pray for those who, who persecute us. I want to be really clear. We should do that. If you are a Christian, you should pray that God would, would save your enemies, that he would show mercy to them, that they would not get what they deserve just as you don't get what you deserve, but that God would, would show himself to them in the person of Christ, draw them to repentance, and that they could be forgiven. We should pray that. But if they won't repent, God must do justice. 
And we should plead for that. We should pray for God to do justice. Justin Hughes and I were talking about this recently, just thinking about some of the mass shooting that's going on and just the, the utter evil of some people. Prayers like this help us to understand, yes, God, do justice. Bring an end. God, turn the Ziphites back to you or end them. Turn Saul to you or end him. But, but this evil has to end, O oh Lord. Christians can pray those sorts of prayers. We plead for God to show mercy. And I think this is especially important as some of us wrestle through some of these psalms because some of us are being harmed by people that we love very much. Some of us have people that we love very much who maybe are just duped in sin, maybe they're unbelievers, we're not sure, but we don't, we don't want them to know the judgment of God. We want them to know His mercy. So yes, there's all sorts of nuance in the ways that we pray this. So you don't have to just take it like, I, I guess I just got to pray this sort of thing. There's ways to nuance that. God knows your heart. He will help you with that. Don't wrestle with that alone. Talk about that with other believers. We, we, can, we can navigate that. But all of that to say, the comfort for God's people is that wickedness will not prevail. God will bring justice. So this morning, if you are here, and there's, maybe you're, maybe you're a spouse who is abusive to your spouse. Maybe you, maybe you hide behind a veneer of religion. I want you to know that God sees and God knows. And he is storing up wrath for you unless you repent. This is a word of mercy to cause you to flee to Jesus. For those who maybe mock Jesus and his people, who strut around in self-righteousness, God calls you his enemy, just like Saul would have done. Saul even uses the Lord's name. Did you catch that in the story? He says, oh, God bless you, Ziphites. That is called taking the Lord's name in vain. You can claim God's name and not know him. God's going to put an end to that sort of life. Employers and politicians and authorities who, who act corruptly and oppress the weak, God will judge. But the, the good news is that a sinner, no matter where they've been or what they've done, can find forgiveness and God can change people. That was David's hope. That can be ours as well. So flee to him. And Christian, as you're pleading for God to intervene in the midst of hard things, trust God's timing. We must leave the, the timing and the manner of judgment up to God. It may or may not be in this lifetime but it will come to pass because God is faithful. So proclaim that your hope is in Him. Pray for help, proclaim your hope, and finally, praise your helper. Praise your helper. Verses 6 and 7. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He praises his helper here. And he says he's going to give a free will offering. Now, I'm sure all of y'all know exactly what that means because you've been spending a lot of time in Leviticus and all those offerings. But just in case you missed it, a free will offering is an offering that is not commanded by God. 
There's times that God commands certain offerings. A free will offering is one that you show up at the temple and the priest is like, well, why are you here? This is not scheduled on the calendar and this is not some particular sin. What's going on? He says, I'm just thankful. I'm just here to give him thanks. He's been good to me, so I am going to, of my own free will, come and bring this word, this, this offering of thanksgiving. David says, that's the kind of thing I'm going to bring, which means he didn't make a vow to God. It means God, he didn't swear, hey, God, if you get me out of this one, I promise I'm going to come and bring an offering, because that wouldn't be a free will offering. That'd be a different kind of offering. This just means he believes that God is going to, to show up. And because of that, he says, I'm going to worship him. And did you notice what tense is that promise in there in verse 6? It's the future. I will. Twice he says, I will. Right? David is certain that God will come through. So certain, he says, I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will give thanks. I think it's really instructive in this text to watch the shift of tenses. Verse 4, God is my help. When is that? Just hang in. we just a couple more minutes. God is my help. That is what tense? Present. Right now, he is my help. Verse 6, I will sacrifice, will give thanks. That is the future. Very good. Verse 7, he has delivered me from every trouble. My eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. When is that? That's in the past. Good. Everywhere David looks, all he sees is God. And that informs his faith. David's confidence in the present that God is his helper and he can pray, pray, God, I need you to get me out of this Ziphite Saul mess that, that, that comes rooted in the past experiences of God's faithfulness. He said, God's been faithful to me when I was a shepherd boy with lions and tigers and bears, oh my, with the Goliath and the Philistines and Saul and other, other, other situations. Like, he was, he was faithful back then. And he's going he's gonna to do it again. So much sure that this fuels my hope for the future that I will offer up something. David, everywhere he looks is God. God been faithful back there. God faithful right now. God will be faithful there. Because I'm going to praise you is what he says. This is your gospel hope this morning if you are a believer in, in Christ. When hope is lost, God is your help and that gives you hope in the midst of hopelessness. He is your hope in the midst of hopelessness. God will make it right. Maybe in this life, in the life to come, for sure. This is what holds God's people together. together. I mean, <laughs> and he will sometimes do it in uncertain ways, right? Think about how God saved David in this situation. David is about to die at the hands of Saul, and he prayed, save me, and God did. And how did God do it? In a very God-like way. Like, what's the way that you're like, you're coming up, you ever have one of those, you like, you make a list of all the ways that this might go, <laughs> and then none of them go that way? Well, this is certainly one of those for David, right? How does God save him in this situation? He sends the stinking Philistines. Like, when you think of like the last people who's going to show up and help David, the Philistines, like they are his arch enemy, the most persistent enemy in David's life. 
God sends some messenger who just gets a, you know, Twitter, his Twitter feed blows up. Uh-oh, Philistines are coming back to Israel. He runs up to Saul. He's like, Saul, look, hashtag trending. Saul's out chasing David, and Philistines are coming for the house. He's like, uh-oh, we got to go. And off they go back. I mean, they're right there about to kill David. And just so happens, the Philistines think, hey, this is a good time to go attack. Don't you doubt for one second that God didn't let the Philistines off a leash and say, go get them. And the Philistines did exactly what they wanted to do in their evil, which is go after Israel. And it happened at just the right time for David to get delivered in a way that he says, I ain't never going to forget that hill. I'm going to write a song about it. And they're going to be preaching about it 4,000 years later, 3,000 years later. That's how God does. God saves in very unlikely ways. And when he saves, very often at the last minute. God very often waits until the last minute. So do not lose hope. God saves his people in unlikely ways. This is the message of the cross. Think of the way that God saves sinners. He would come among us, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, suffering and dying on a cross, and then rising from the dead. And now, not by get your act together, but by you can do nothing, so I've done it for you. Here is a gift. Come and receive it. Be forgiven. The gospel is very unlike any way people would draw it up. That's why Christianity is different from every other religion. Every other religion, religion you look at, somehow you've got to do something to make God happy with you so you can get it into whatever the afterlife is or whatever experience from Nirvana or whatever you're going to have. Every other religion is like that. It's the religion of do, 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 but not in Christianity. It is done, done, done because Christ came and did it for you. It's unlike anything we would ever dream of because God gets all the glory, not us. And it's in the most unlikely of timing. Jesus was in the grave. He was done, y'all. It was over. It's a wrap. But he came unwrapped, came out of the grave, and he's alive. And God's people find help in their hopelessness because Jesus defeated our greatest enemy, which is death. And that, I tell you, friends, someday, soon and very soon, when we're out of this world and we're out of unconditioned air-conditioned buildings and we're in places that are glorious, whatever 72 degrees of glory will be like, when we are there with the Lord, all of history will be some sort of revealing of God's wisdom, of the way that every person who ever lived that God worked every circumstance from the very hairs falling off of their head in every person who's ever lived and throughout history, how he's worked it all together in such ways that he was saving his people and being faithful time and again through every heartbreak and every promotion that didn't come and every time that stock dropped when you needed to sell it and every you could, a billion things that went wrong and you just think God was against me, but he was for you working together for your good in ways that we could never see but he was always planning. Those Philistines were already on the run toward Israel when David heard about the Ziphites and was running. He didn't know, but God knew. He always does it that way. And that is why Psalm 52.9 says, we will thank you forever because you have done it. Therefore, I will wait for your name, for it is good. In this life, what we can know is that what will fuel our thanksgiving forever is looking back at all the ways that God was our help in hopeless time. So plead with him. Pray, God, help me to have eternal eyes that I can see what you see and I can't see. God, I'm going to proclaim that you're my helper right now. And I'm going I'm to praise you 
even in the face of circumstances that would call me not to, because you're worthy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now, and we pray for help. Lord, we need help. Each of us need it in different ways. Lord, you know what we need, when we need it, how we need it. Oh, God, would you be near to us? Lord, I pray particularly for brothers and sisters who are struggling and suffering this morning, who, who made it in here and they weren't even sure how. But Lord, would you show them that you are good and that you do good, that your name is good and that it is revealed supremely in Christ and that they can trust you. Lord, we pray that particularly now for the Thailand team who is um, yeah, trusting you in hard circumstances. We pray it for our brothers and sisters who are about to be baptized. Lord, we pray that you would give them grace as they make a public proclamation, that you would surround them by your strength. Lord, be near to your people. We need you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.